Amen. The book is Haggai, and we continue this morning in our study on spiritual renewal. What it is and what God does when he begins to spiritually renew his people. And we've been telling stories of renewal throughout this series. And I want to begin this morning with one of the larger moments inside of church history. And I want to talk a little bit about what happened with Martin Luther. Martin Luther, as a young man, was... was basically frightened of his guilt before God, and it frightened him into service in the Catholic Church and into a monastery. But as a young man, Martin Luther felt profoundly the sense of his shame and his guilt and his sin before God. And that sense of unremitting guilt drove him to work incredibly hard. It drove him to study, it drove him to pray, it drove him into confession on a constant basis, constantly performing penance, because in his theology it was the things that you did that would earn you your right standing before God. And so he worked really hard, but none of it relieved him of his sense of guilt until he found his way into studying pieces of the New Testament. Specifically, one or two passages of Scripture in the books of Galatians and Romans. The heart and mind of Martin Luther was captured by a phrase that shows up in both of those books and is, in fact, a quote from the Old Testament. And the phrase is this, The righteous will live by faith. And here's what struck him. Those who stand right before God will live by faith, Scripture says, instead of by striving. Instead of by earning, instead of by works. What Luther had discovered in Scripture that he had been searching for his entire adult life was the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of forgiveness of our sins by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something we work for or earn. It's something that's given to us by Jesus Christ. And what he discovers there and what he does and and how the chips begin to sort of fall in that moment, it's a great big story, but we can say one thing leads to another and suddenly we have historically in the 1500s what we call the Protestant Reformation. Now before Luther's break with the Catholic Church, the doctrines of salvation by faith through grace and the authority of Scripture itself were hidden behind the way the Catholic Church had structured itself and the way it was doling out indulgences and asking people to pay for salvation and all. It was hidden inside of the Catholic Church. And what Luther does and what the Reformation does is it brings these doctrines to the front. And the Protestant Reformation leads to this colossal change in the cultural landscape. And when changes are that large, it comes with good things and it comes with bad things. And it's a huge story. But here's a lot of what happens at the very core of the Reformation. It leads to a recovery of and the teaching of some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. They come known to us, they become known to us as what we sometimes call the five solas. Now, how many of you have heard that phrase, the five solas? It means you probably came from a Reformation or a liturgical background. Sola is the Latin word for alone or solo. And here are the five solas. I'm just going to give them to you really quick so that we can understand how these are the things that are right at the very core of our Christian faith. Sola gratia, by grace alone. We are saved by grace 
alone. Sola fide. It is through our faith, by grace, that we are saved. Not through our works, not through the purchases of indulgence, and so on and so forth. Solus Christus. Christ alone is our salvation. And can you kind of feel in these things the very foundation of our faith, our doctrine? Sola Deo Gloria. It is all for the glory of God alone. And this will become, in fact, our theme next week at the end of the book of Haggai. Sola Scriptura. The authority of Scripture to teach us about God and His will and His relationship with humanity. And sola scriptura becomes the basis of what we are going to talk about this morning. Now, something interesting happens historically when you study these renewals, when these great big things happen. And sometimes they're on national scales, city scales, sometimes they're on international scales. There is this curious thing that happens every time inside of these renewals when God begins to move. They have this two step pattern with Christian doctrine. The first step is that we have to get rid of false teaching about God. We get rid of idols. We get rid of false ideas about God. We get rid of bad teaching about God. And we replace all of that with a renewed commitment and love of the true things about God. And so these true doctrines of our salvation faith, they come to the front through the Reformation. And false teaching about God falls to the wayside. And so we learn something in renewal when it comes to what we believe about God. In renewal, God's people fall in love with the truth. We've mentioned this in different ways throughout this study. There has never been and there never will be a renewal of the Spirit of God amongst His people where we cling to falsehood, false teaching, cultural teaching about God. When we slide away from our faith, it's the opposite of renewal. In renewal, God's people fall in love with the truths of God. We want to know them. We want to live them. We love them. We know the value that is in them, and we want others to know the truths about Jesus Christ. So when we open our passage of Scripture today, this morning, what happens is this. Haggai goes to the priests, and he asks the priests, the spiritual leaders of God's people, he asks them a pair of theological questions. Questions about the relationship between law of God and the people of God and, and their behavior. And it turns out, as Haggai sort of fleshes out this sermon, it turns out that the people of God have not been paying attention to God's Word. They have not been living according to the Word of God. Now, this is a curiosity inside of this passage, because up to this point, we've been really pleased with how Haggai's congregation has responded to the voice of God, right? They had stopped building the temple out of fear of their enemies, Haggai and Zechariah show up, and they say, you guys need to restart the building. And they say, yes, we'll do it. So they start rebuilding the temple. So far, so good. Haggai shows up, and he says, well, the outward looks good. The inward does not. So on the outside, we're doing the right things. But on the inside, there hasn't been the right transformation. The externals are looking better, but the internal work of ridding themselves of false beliefs and false worship and false idols still needs to happen. In fact, the internal work of building that foundation 
of relationship with God is the real work that needs to get done. And then all of the rest of it is going to follow properly. So here in our passage is this two-step process we're going to see as Haggai speaks to his congregation. The first, God's people need to get rid of false idols. These idols are anything or any sets of things, any ideas, any spirits that take the place that belong to God alone. Anything in our lives that does for us or we ask it to do for us what only God should be doing. These are false idols in our lives, and the people of God need to get rid of these false idols. And this includes false beliefs about God. Now look, guys, the enemy is going to use absolutely every tactic at his disposal to distance you from relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that means he convinces you about falsehoods about God, his job is done. And we've distanced ourselves from who God is and the life that he wants us to leave. So these idols include that. So idolatry corrupts us. This language will become important to Haggai. Idolatry corrupts us in our relationship with God. So that's step one. We need to get rid of that. Step two, God's people need to fall in love with God's Word. Falling in love with God's Word, it means reading it. It means learning how to understand it. It means praying through it. But it means so much more than that. It needs all of that, falling in love with God's Word. But it means then we also learn to listen to it and obey it and live it and apply it to the lives that God has given us. This is what it means to fall in love with the Word of God. So where idolatry corrupts us, God's Word will cleanse the people of God. So let's begin reading Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. Let me begin by reading just a few verses as Haggai sort of sets up the point of his sermon. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or, stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Let's open the altars and pray right now. About two months after the last sermon, God comes to Haggai again and he speaks to the priests. So Haggai is essentially four sermons, and this is the third of his sermons here in the middle of Haggai chapter 2. So they've started the work. Haggai spoke to them, encouraged them, they're doing the right thing. Two months later, roughly in the middle of December is where scholars put this date now, Haggai comes back and begins to speak with the priests of God. And what he does is he asks them a pair of questions that just sound odd to us. This question about holy meat 
and carrying it in your robe and accidentally brushing up against a table that has a bunch of other food on it? And does that food become clean or unclean and touching dead bodies? And then what happens next when you touch other stuff? Does it become clean or unclean? It sounds foreign to our ears, but it was an incredibly important set of questions to these people. And it's communicating some very important things to the priests of God and then to the people of God as well. So Haggai asked questions about clean things and unclean things. And so the questions he's asking are falling into some really important categories of Old Testament law. So the next time you spend time reading through books like Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy, you're going to run across this language because the category in Old Testament law of what is clean and unclean is a really important piece of what God uses to speak to his people. What is or is not clean or unclean, what makes it clean or unclean. So for instance, the Old Testament teaches that certain foods are by their nature unclean, which means that God's people are not allowed to eat those kinds of foods Then we have clean foods. These are the foods that you're allowed to eat. We might know that as kosher food laws. These are clean food laws. The Old Testament also talks about touching corpses and dead bodies, and it's actually taught several times in the Old Testament. If you touch a corpse or a dead body, you have become unclean because of death itself. And you've touched it, become unclean, and now you have to actually cleanse yourself and become clean. Now, some of you are thinking, if you touch a dead body, of course you're supposed to wash your hands before you eat, right? Touch a dead body, and then they touch the food on the table. Is the food clean or unclean? Well, it's dirty now. It's covered in... I know some of you people are germ-sensitive individuals, right? These are not laws about germs and bacteria. These are laws about being ceremonially clean or unclean. In our standing before God and our relationships with each other, touching a dead body was not a wrong thing to do, but it's a symbol of you become unclean and now you have to be made clean. These kinds of laws and these kinds of questions, they become a way of teaching us about God's purity and our impurity of his holiness and our unholiness. God is perfectly and untouchably clean and perfect and pure. In our sin and the brokenness of our world, we are constantly coming in contact with that which is unholy or unclean. And so we're constantly becoming unclean, and we need to be cleansed again. So often in the Old Testament... We've got these kinds of laws that talk about this. And then they say in order to become ceremonially clean again, you would have to wash or go through a certain kind of sacrificial ceremony of sorts so that you would be allowed back into temple worship, so that you'd be allowed back into the city and become a part of regular daily life. So the language of clean and unclean becomes a spiritual stand-in for a holy and unholy. It becomes a lesson... What happens inside of us and how we are made, either unclean or clean. So Haggai asks the priests a question, again, that makes perfect sense to them. But here's the point of his questions. 
He asks them about caring food, food that has been consecrated to God, a holy piece of meat has been consecrated to God, so it has become holy. The priests carry that in the temple inside of the fold of their robe. Inside of the temple, there are also other implements that are used in worship. And there are cups of wine, and there are certain kinds of stews and soups, and there are uh, loaves of bread that are put out, and all of this is a part of their worship. And Haggai says, okay, so first question. You're carrying holy meat, and the, the edge of your robe touches that piece of bread. Does that piece of bread become holy or unholy, clean or unclean? The priest says, well, it doesn't become clean. The question is this, is this how holiness transfers? Is from thing to thing to thing, and everything it touches, like a Midas touch, it becomes clean. The priest says, no, it's not how it works. And they're right. So he says, well, let's say someone has buried their relative, and they've touched a dead body, and they come into the temple, and they accidentally touch the bread that is on the table. Does the bread become unclean? I said, yeah, it's a matter of fact. The bread becomes unclean. See, each individual thing itself has to be consecrated to God in order to become holy. So uncleanliness transfers like that, but cleanliness does not transfer like that. So here's, here's part of the bottom line in the language of Haggai. Something unclean can make something that is clean unclean. Is that clear or unclear? <laughs> All right? Something that is unclean can make something that is clean unclean. Here's where Haggai is going with his sermon. An unclean heart can make a good deed unclean before God. An unclean heart can make a good deed unholy before God. And that's a shocking thing. For God's people to hear. It's a shocking thing for works righteousness to hear. So here's the point. Here's the point Haggai is going to make. God isn't looking for clean deeds with unclean hearts. He wants clean hearts. And then what we put our hands to do will honor God and bless God and love our neighbor and bless our neighbor. This is what God is after in his people. So the point is holiness according to the word of God. The point is about the lives, the hearts and minds and souls of the people of God. Not just that we're rebuilding a temple, but that we here are right before God. So it's fascinating to me that this sermon is addressed to the priests. If you go and you read the introductions to the rest of Haggai's sermons, he addresses the sermons to Joshua and to Zerubbabel, to Joshua and Zerubbabel. The last one is just addressed to Zerubbabel, and this one's different. He addresses it to the priests because he's after this special relationship that God intends to have between his priests and the Word of God. The, God intends a special relationship between his spiritual leaders and the Word of God itself. So Haggai goes to the priests because Scripture considers it their job to keep God's people in line with God's Word. Scripture intends it to be the job of his spiritual leaders to make sure his Word is known and make sure the people of God hear it and learn it and figure out how to live it. If you go a couple more Old Testament books to the right, the very last book in the Old Testament, 
Malachi the prophet lives and speaks about 200 years after the life of Haggai. It is the last, not just book in the Old Testament, but chronologically it's the last book in the Old Testament as well. And part of what Malachi does is he speaks to God's priests because they have failed in their job. And here's part of what Malachi says God intends for this relationship. Malachi chapter 2 verse 7 goes like this. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. I love that phrase. I've had the opportunity a few times to speak to pastors about what we do as pastors, and I almost always use this verse of Scripture. It is the job of the priest's lips to guard knowledge. The people should know that they should be able to seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger. And there's this beautiful name for God that shows up in these last three books a lot. He is the messenger the God of angel armies. He's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, if you go back and you read the rest of Malachi chapter 2, it gets a little bit rough because it turns out the priests haven't done that. God pronounces judgment on them for not teaching the word of God to the people of God. But it's the job of God's spiritual leaders to, pre to, to preach to guard God's knowledge. So this relationship, Haggai goes to the priests because the people need to hear something about the word of the Lord. This begins to speak to the importance, the need of a healthy church environment and engagement and healthy church leadership. Our engagement with each other under the word of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what God intends for us as we are followers of Jesus Christ. So how is it that we know what God's Word actually requires of us? Well, God wants there to be people who will read His Word out loud and talk about it. God wants there to be people who fall in love with His Word and read it for themselves and learn how to figure it out and live it and, and, and learn how to actually teach it to others as well. This is how we know what God's Word requires of us. How will we learn how to live God's Word? what's consistent throughout Scripture. God wants His people living out their faith with the rest of God's people. When someone who has been a part of a church in the family of God begins to separate themselves from other Christians, not just move from one church or another, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who, for whatever reason, begin to separate themselves from the body of Christ and from other Christians it is almost inevitable that those people will also separate themselves from God. God intends this to be the environment in which we are encouraged and pushed along and sometimes even convicted, but learn how to live out the faith of God. So how is it that Haggai's congregation is hearing the Word of God? How is it, how are they doing when it comes to actually living out the Word of God? Well, again, the benefit of reading Haggai is that we have two other books in the Old Testament that tell us the history. They tell us the story of what's actually happened, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra is this scribe that comes back with the people of God, and he reestablishes the Word of God, and he helps to reestablish what happens in worship in the temple and so forth. Nehemiah comes back, and he helps to rebuild the walls around the city, and he leads with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. And both Ezra and Nehemiah work together in these incredible ways in order to flush out idolatry from God's people because they brought false gods with them, 
and to reestablish the word of God amongst his people. So there's this incredible passage of scripture. It happens in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read a couple of these verses. Nehemiah 8 verses 2 and 3. Here's how it goes. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. So he brings the nation of Israel. They're actually into the temple steps. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, anybody who could understand. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And every pastor goes, that would be awesome. (laughs) stand and just read the word of God and explain it so that people can understand it and the spirit of God opens the ears of God's people so that they hear it and they're touched by it you go back and you read the rest of Nehemiah chapter 8 some interesting things begin to happen the first reaction the people of God have is they begin to weep they break down and they weep because they know they have to repent. When the word of God is read to them, they learn, because God has opened their ears, they learn where they have sinned against God, where they have fallen short, where they have brought false idols and false worship into their lives, and they begin to weep because they know, now I have to repent, and now things have to change in order for me to be right with God. So that's their first reaction. And then Nehemiah, steps up in front of the rest of the crowd, and he says, listen, everybody, today is not a day for weeping. Today is a day for rejoicing. This is an interesting day. So the people of God then begin to rejoice, because Nehemiah says, because now you've heard the word of God, and you know what is needed of you, and now your lives are going to begin to change. You see, any time God begins to cleanse his people through the reading and the hearing of his word, it is a day for rejoicing, even when we are convicted because God is at work. It's this magnificent passage of Scripture. And it is in that section that we get the one phrase that everybody knows, but nobody knows is from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. It gives God joy to make you strong. It's a magnificent passage of Scripture. So what we learn from Haggai... What we learn from the world that he was living in, what Ezra and Nehemiah do with the people of God. We are made strong because God speaks to us through his word. When we ignore his word, we fall away and we fall into sin and we fall away from the life that God created us to live. So the word of God, when it has its way inside of us, it makes us strong. And the weeping that they went through led to a purge of the idols among them. Nehemiah is quite a character. I love his counseling technique. At the end of the book of Nehemiah, as he is dealing with people who brought idols into their homes and haven't gotten rid of them, Nehemiah comes in to kind of help them along in the process. And the text actually says, Nehemiah punches them in the face and pulls out their beards. This is why I do not have a counseling license, because this, is, this to me is the effective way of doing things. But that weeping leads to a purging of idols. You see, exposure to the truth of God revealed what was wrong in their own hearts and lives. And then they worked hard to get rid of it. 
This is what's inside of these questions that Haggai asks that we don't understand. That we need to be pure and clean before God, and this is how it happens. It happens with the work of God inside of the lives of his people. And so the sermon continues. Let's begin with verse 14 and read through the end of his sermon. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. There was less than we thought. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barns? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. So it is with these people, Haggai says. The point of clean and unclean, Haggai says, is because the hearts of God's people are still far from him. Their hearts are still unclean. They haven't been dedicated to God. The inner work has not been done. So again, guys, this is critical. They were outwardly obedient, but they were inwardly unclean. And because inwardly they were not right with God, the things that they were doing for God were displeasing to him, which is fascinating. They continued to work in unnecessary toil. And God has used this economic language several times in this short book. Your economy is just a sliver of what it should be. You work really hard to produce this and only this comes out. And God says, it's because you're not right with me. Your work has become toil. And you're falling backwards instead of moving forwards. So they need to be, as we put together Haggai and Ezra and Nehemiah, we discover that they need to be proactive about getting rid of the things that separate them from God. And this is part of what you and I hear this morning from this sermon. We need to be proactive about getting rid of the things that separate us from relationship with God. So, guys, our, our, our idols need to be identified, and they need to go. We need to learn what they are. We need to figure out how they work inside of our lives. And then we need to work against them, and they have to go. What are our idols? How do they work? Again, this is a huge conversation, but I want to lay at least a little bit of groundwork for this work inside of our hearts. Many of the idols that we live by are the assumptions that we live by, the things that we just don't think about, the things that we don't critically examine. Well, what is my relationship with my money? What is my relationship with my education? How do I handle my family relationships, my work relationships, the priorities that just sort of run my daily life without me even thinking about them? As we begin to process those kinds of things, it, it quickly comes to the surface that many of the priorities and directions in our lives, the ways in which we live, 
are ways that are contrary to the things of God, and they've become idols inside of our lives. So one way to begin to think about where the idols sit inside of my heart, you might think this way, well, what if I began to just assume that many of the ways in which we now live are at odds with the way that God intends us to live? And begin to actually take stock of these normal everyday things, but critical things in our daily lives and the ways in which we live. And if those things begin to change and begin to change in the direction of the kingdom of God, what would change about us? How would I go about learning the way of God's life? As I was thinking through this issue, the, the issue of modern-day idolatry is just kind of always rolling through my head, um, how it works inside of our culture, our lives. And, guys, the, the line between idolatry inside of the church and idolatry outside of the church, sometimes that's a pretty thin line. So when I talk about this stuff, I'm not necessarily saying all of those people. <laughs> We're talking about what's happening inside of our own hearts and lives. I'm going to give you guys a list here, a list of some of our modern idols. <clears throat> A little bit of comment on each one, but I want to leave these with you guys to sort of ponder and think through. These idols are things that are important to the world around us, sometimes in our own heart, that teach us how to live in ways that are contrary to God's way of life. Now, here's what I mean. Here's, let's think about this idol. Truth is oppressive. Self-expression is freeing. Truth is oppressive. This has been brewing inside of Western culture for a very long time. If you believe that there is something called objective truth, especially when it comes to religion and morality, you are oppressive if you tell me I'm supposed to believe the same thing. The only way in which I am free as an individual is to be able to self-express. However, I think I should be living or thinking that's the only freedom that there is. And truth is oppressive, okay? We feel this in the world around us, and this is an idol. And by the way, this is false. <laughs> this is destructive. This tears lives to shreds. Here's the flip side of that coin. The self is supreme. God is a possible add-on. The most important thing to take care of inside of my life is my life. And you might choose God, you might choose this God, you might choose another God, you might choose another way of sort of expressing your spiritual side if you're that kind of person. It's a possible add-on. He might make you feel good about a few things, but the supreme thing in life is you. Your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. That's it. Maybe you want to add on God, maybe not. But that's all he is. It's a possible add-on. How about this one? I like this one. We are born innocent and happy. Commitments, restrictions, cultural norms, religion, all make me less than I was born to be. You people did this to me. That, that's what this idol is. Because you told me to live a certain way, because you gave me a certain cultural norm, because you expected me to live inside of a certain box and I wasn't allowed to freely express myself, that's what makes me a serial killer. <laughs> I was born perfect and happy. And if I'm free from all of those norms, then I can be perfect and happy again a radical contradiction of reality, but a powerful idol in our culture. How about this one? Politics is our surest path of cultural salvation. God is part of the problem, not part of the solution. 
We have to get rid of as much of God as possible in the public square because somehow a political scheme will save us. Now, I use this language on purpose because it is the language that is inside of these idols. They provide for us. They intend to be happiness for us. They intend to be salvation for us. This will fix everything. God won't. He's the problem. We, however, have a solution. That doesn't go well any time it's tried. My identity is constructed by my place in this world and the way others view me. My socioeconomic status. My place ethnically in this world. That's all there is to my identity. And it's given to me by my place in this world and where I fit. And I'm going to struggle and work against that instead of I'm a redeemed child of God. Right? Identity is a big deal in our culture. And it's broken in a lot of ways. How about this one? The newer, the truer, the faster, the better, the older, the irrelevanter. Now, that last one didn't work, but (laughs) old is irrelevant. We're actually trained on a daily basis to believe this without even thinking about it. Just imagine yourself scrolling through that social media feed. Everything that has now escaped under the top of your feed is gone. The only thing that is important is what's beneath it in the feed, and that is coming up. We are trained in all kinds of ways, okay? To believe that, you know, faster, better, newer, truer, if it's old, it's irrelevant, it's gone. What's next is better than what used to be, and it's a horrible idol. It's a horrible idol. And then, this one doesn't surprise us, religion and morality are choose-your-own-adventures, right? We can just figure that one out as we go, and we can pick it for our own selves. Now, this is just a sampling of the kinds of idols that structure the air that we breathe, the culture that we live in. And oftentimes, without even thinking about it, we pull these idols into our faith with Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful. We have to be attentive. We have to be proactive about finding out where these kinds of things work and getting them out. You see, these idols, all of them come with promises. All of them come with promises. But all of their promises are falling apart. The reality they produce does not match the picture on the box that they sold it with, right? I love how this pastor Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church, talks about this idea. He says this, Lifestyles in the West now trend toward immaturity, paralysis, and isolation. Its inner contradictions and contagions drive us away from flourishing and instead push us into decline. I think he's right. This is what these idols do. These are, again, the, prog- the promises of progress without the presence of God, without the truths of God, without the wisdom of God. And when these kinds of idols take their place in the lives of God's people, there is corruption inside of our hearts and minds and relationships and work and in all that we do. And so what makes us clean, right, what can make us holy can only come from God himself the replacement of those things with the true things that we learn through the Word of God about who He is and what life with Him is like. So here we find the second half of that step. The people of God need to recapture their relationship with the Word of God. 
Um, as I've been going through this, I've been hunting down these, these pieces of history and story, and I, I found another fascinating one, and, uh, and Roy was kind of helping me with some of this information, but I ran across a story of an Indian name by the name of Bak Singh. So in 1937, there was this revival that sweeps across India, resulting in the salvation, in a very short period of time, of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people saved and becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And at one point, there were over 10,000 brand new church plants associated with this one short revival. And at the head of that revival was one man by the name of Bak Singh. He was born into a Hindi home. He was dedicated as a Sikh, as a young man. When he went to go study in England, he threw all that behind, and he became an open and a devoted atheist. Then he and a bunch of friends decided one year, I think it was 1928, they were going to travel to Canada, and they were going to do some work over the summer and earn some money. On the ship, he went to a Christian service out of respect for some of his friends. At the end of the service, um, because everyone else was asked to do so, again, out of respect, he kneels as they begin to pray, and he finds himself praying. And he found himself at the end of that prayer repeating one phrase over and over and over again. He couldn't stop. Thou art the living Christ. He did not walk into that meeting looking for salvation or truth. He was a devoted atheist. But God gave it to him anyway. <laughs> and he was radically changed on that trip. In Canada, his host family had a New Testament that he could read. He took that New Testament, he went and he sat underneath a tree and he read it for three days and nights. He would fall asleep underneath that tree, he would wake up and he would just pick up reading where he left off the night before. A little bit later, that host family was able to get him an entire Bible that he could read. And when he started reading that Bible, he would read that Bible. He started in Genesis 1-1, and he would read it for 14 hours a day for three months straight. While he was doing that, he ran across this phrase that he counted over 500 times just in the first few books of the Old Testament. The phrase was simple. It was, God said, God said, God said. So he decided, I'm reading the book of a God who speaks, and I'm going to learn how to hear his voice when I, hear, when I read his word, and I'm going to live my life according to the voice of God. So sure enough, you read about his life and all that God does through him, and everything that he did, he did, he would do because of how the word of God would speak to him. He'd go here, he'd say this, he would deal with these people in a certain way because of something that he read and he heard through the word of of God. So he learned to hear God's voice through his word. And he traveled all over India and eventually over the world as well, but all over India in these evangelistic crusades. And Roy told me about one of these stories, and I read it in one of his biographies. And again, you read about these kinds of things, and just these, these crazy stories come to the surface. He and his disciples were walking through these villages, um, having these evangelistic meetings and services. They walk into one village, and the village begins to tell them, we haven't had rain. We need rain. Would you please pray for rain? His disciples say, you can't pray for rain here. And he asked them, why can't I pray for rain? And he said, because we didn't bring our umbrellas. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. They knew that if he prayed for rain, what was going to happen? <laughs> they walked home in the rain that day. The story goes. These evangelistic crusades. And eventually he started this church planting movement. Again, leading to over 10,000 churches planted because of this particular revival. 
And it is said that he would begin a lot of his services by asking everybody there, if you have a Bible, grab your Bible and hold it up and wave it in the air. And everybody who did not have a Bible would walk out of that building with the Bible. The Bible societies that he worked with would run out of Bibles over and over and over again. He believed this was so important. He heard God's voice in his word. So again, we've got this story of a young man, a student, who is touched by the word of God, takes it seriously, learns how to hear the voice of God in it, and God begins to change the lives of thousands upon thousands of people for generation after generation after generation. You see, holy living for Haggai's congregation is going to have to be life according to the Word of God. It is the divine Word that reaches into the recesses of the human condition where no other word can reach. And it does the work. It allows the Spirit of God to do the work in us that only the Spirit of God can do. Some of you may remember something we read in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the very center of who we are, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, because it is God's Word. No other word can do that. So guys, renewal requires belief in the authority and in the power of the Word of God. If we diminish this thing in our lives, we are headed in the opposite direction from the renewal of God's Spirit in our lives. So I'm going to give you another list this morning. And again, just very quickly give this to you. What does it mean for me to believe in the authority and the power of the Word of God? What kind of beliefs come with that? What becomes important to me? And I'm going to give this to you, and I'm going to let you guys work with it. First of all, I believe God's Word to be God's act of revealing Himself and speaking to me. Right? This is not just what Jeremiah wrote or Paul wrote or Haggai wrote. This is actually the voice of God revealed to me so that I could hear Him and learn who He is and what life with Him is like. I believe God's Word to be the authoritative document on the character and will of God. It is what tells me who God is what he is like, what he thinks, how he acts in the lives of his people. I believe God's word to be the authoritative, authoritative document on the character and nature of me, of humanity. What's going on inside of this heart? How does sin work? How does redemption work? What does salvation look like? How does the kingdom of God make its way out inside of this life? Well, the word of God is full of this kind of information. I believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, sent to show the way of salvation, and that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Scripture tells us that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And I value the word of God enough to let it speak to me daily. I value it enough to let it speak to me on a regular basis, daily. So here's how Haggai finishes his sermon. Consider from this day onward is the beginning of verse 18. From this day onward, we're going to live according to the word of God, that God cleanses us on the inside. 
And at the end of that, the very last sentence, but from this day on, I will bless you. And in between, the point is this. The work has just begun. It hasn't even finished. We're on the edge of another um, growing and harvesting season. We're not even there yet, but I want to tell you this now. Before all of that is done and accomplished, we live according to the Word of God, and I will bless you now. It's not that result. It's not that external. All of that's going to come when it flows out of our hearts and our lives, but that's not it. What needs to be it is the Word of God. It's at work inside of the lives of God's people. So the Word of God will open their inner lives to the transformation that God wants for His presence and for His blessing. The externals will come later. What God wants is the hearts and lives of His children. Guys, let's pray 